This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. There's a, uh, a line from the philosopher Wittgenstein, uh, which I like to quote and use in ways Wittgenstein did not, but he has a line that the, the limits of my language mark the limits of my world. And uh, I think this is, uh, it's, a, it's a great line for thinking about the purpose of liberal education broadly, right? That what one of the things that liberal education does for us is to expand our vocabulary uh, and actually through expanding our vocabulary enable us to see more because we can name more in what we see. And it allows us to continually expand uh, the fields of knowledge and experience I think that's, it's, it's important to keep that in mind, and I'll be focusing on one element of that in the next two lectures, not today, but the next two, because I think one of the things that's really important about art is that we develop a vocabulary to talk about art. And that vocabulary is in part can be theoretical, but it also is uh, practical and particular in the sense that we need vocabularies that um, uh, that are attuned to the specific medium or type of art that we're confronting, hearing, seeing. And also even within that, say within literature, there are genres, right? Uh, and you might say there are genres within film. I'll be talking uh, about a one film on, uh, on Thursday that's uh, identified as part of a, uh, a genre of film called The Comedies of Remarriage, the Philadelphia story. Uh, and so I think it's important that we try to develop over time as rich a vocabulary as we can for talking about art in general, but also for talking about particular artistic media, uh, that is the, the, the particular uh, concrete type of art, and then forms of art within that. So, and I think Maritam was attempting to do that in his confrontation with, confrontation encounter is a better word, uh, a, a lot of early to mid 20th century artists. And it's actually a remarkable thing that so many, even up to today, uh, some contemporary artists, so many artists have found what Maritan had to say attractive and helpful in thinking about their own creative processes and in thinking about the art that they were making. In fact, one of Maritan's students, Yves Simone, who's actually, I think, uh, a better philosopher than Maritain, than his teacher, and one of the uh, lesser known and unduly neglected uh, great thinkers of the mid 20th century in the Thomistic revival. But Yves Simone said this about the fact that uh, the influence of Maritain's aesthetics and through Maritain's aesthetics of the work of St. Thomas on 20th century artists, here, here was his comment about this, that an artist should be interested in scholasticism and should use the principles of this philosophy to understand and explain what is going on in the vanguard of painting, music, and poetry in the 20th century will remain one of the best surprises that ever confronted historians of philosophy. And here we face one of the implicitly one of the great paradoxes of Maritain's life and thought. Maritain was at once deeply traditional and avant-garde, deeply committed to a recovery of the work of Thomas Aquinas and also immersed in the currents of his time. Anti-modern is the, is the title of, a famous title of one of his books. 
Yet he was also at the center of a movement in Paris that sought to bring together traditional philosophy, traditional Catholic worship with avant-garde cultural movements. Reasons for taking Maritain's work on art seriously arise not just from his numerous lengthy treatments. You have two of them that I assigned at least part of one and another one. The other big book, which is actually much harder to read, is called Creative Intuition. That's the really long uh, development of his own theory of art. Uh, but also from the fact that his work grows out of his encounter with modern artists and has had a decisive influence on many of them. His wife, Raisa, wrote at one point, it was with the great French painter Georges Rouault in mind that Jacques wrote Art and Scholasticism. Maritain's influence has been profound and lasting. As an aspiring poet writing a thesis on William Blake at Columbia, Thomas Merton discovered in a bookstore in New York Maritain's Art and Scholasticism and found in it a traditional account of art that accommodated modern poets such as Blake and demonstrated how art could remain open to the transcendent, to a spiritual order. It was an important moment in Merton's conversion. His writings had an even more profound effect on Flannery O'Connor. We, we, we have to uh, nod to the hillbilly Thomist, right? Singular in this case, not plural. Uh, the, the, the plural ones are local. Uh, who found Maritain's articulation of the distinction between art and ethics liberating, that the, what she kept talking about that she picked up from Maritain, that she said artists need to develop the habit of art. She also found it liberating that she wasn't required morally or spiritually to produce art, uh, pious trash, as she bluntly called it at one point, that was uh, seen uh, to be immediately spiritually helpful to people. More recently, the poet Dana Joya and the painter Makoto Fujimura have found in Maritain's writing a language that has helped them to articulate their experience of the artistic process and to mediate between the traditional goals of art and contemporary means and modes of expression of art. Perhaps most impression, the great Seamus Haney appeals to Maritain in a famous essay that he wrote uh, uh, talking about his the account of the genesis of poetic inspiration. Begins this essay, six, uh, um, begins this essay by saying that he's trying to describe how a poem gets up on its legs and learns to walk around. And he uses, uses Maritain's account from creative intuition. Maritain is significant for the paths he opens up in the areas of aesthetics and for the language that he develops. He also had a sense, and here I hearken back to some of the things I was talking about yesterday, that in early to mid 20th century, what was needed was a new language for human making. In his occasional references to the similarities between the artist and the contemplative or the mystic, he also hints at the connections between art, transcendence, and the language and practice of praise, Laudato Si, again. And like the recent popes that I discussed yesterday, he is acutely aware of the threats of both radical anthropocentrism and biocentrism. He was also aware that we were living in dark times and that what was peculiar about those dark times is that the darkness had been largely brought on by Western civilization pursuing a path of enlightenment, that certain elements of a progressive, technocratic, rationalist enlightenment had actually led to darkness and barbarism. 
in, a, in a book called The Twilight of Civilization, he writes in the preface, if twilight ushers in night, night itself precedes the day. So this is not a hopelessness about the darkness of early to mid 20th century Western civilization. And in human history, it often happens that the first rays of a dawn are mingled with the twilight. In my mind, the notion of the present trials endured by civilization was inseparable from that of a new humanism, which is in preparation in the present death struggle of the world, and which at the same time is preparing a renewal of civilization. Here we find encapsulated Maritain's sense of the threats to civilization alongside his lingering hope that through confronting them, civilization might be reborn. Maritain thinks that we shall have to reckon with nihilism and darkness rather than simply circumvent them. He's not offering or interested in what I called yesterday facile transcendence. And one of the vehicles through which this rebirth can occur is art. To get a sense of the significance of his life and work, it's best to begin with a famous passage in the memoir, We Have Been Friends Together, that his wife Raisa wrote. She's a Jewish convert, uh, although not at this point a convert. And in it, she describes the condition of soul that she and Jacques found themselves in in their early days studying philosophy at the Sorbonne. Raisa directly talks about the threat of nihilism in 20th century philosophy. She traces it to a kind of skepticism, to the denial of the objectivity of our knowledge, of our very ability to grasp the real. This form of skepticism reduces all knowledge to works of art and the imagination, and with even less reference than art to reality. The implications are relativism, intellectual skepticism, and if one was logical, moral nihilism. There are also cultural and political consequences. She sees a parallel to the rise of the, uh, she sees a parallel to philosophical skepticism in the rise of what she calls the new barbarism that was to deck itself out in the prestige of a culture already worn thin, already hypocritical, already prepared for the worship of force. Epistemological skepticism and ethical relativism create the conditions for the fascist politics of raw power. Driven by a kind of integrity of spirit, they're standing on a bridge in Paris, the pair confronted this problem directly. On this particular day, we had just said to one another that if our nature was so unhappy as to possess only a pseudo-intelligence capable of everything but truth, if, sitting in judgment on itself, it had to debase itself to such a point that we could neither think nor act with any dignity, in that case everything became absurd and impossible to accept. Refusing to take part in such a dark comedy, they make what was in effect a suicide pact. If they vowed to one another, they did not within the next year discover truth worthy of devotion, they would end their lives. During that year, what they planned to do was what Raisa described as extending a credit to existence, looking upon it as an experiment to be made in the hope that to our ardent plea the meaning of life would reveal itself. Otherwise, the only option would be freely elected suicide. 
Raisa goes on to describe their providential encounter with the philosopher Henri Bergson, who would introduce them to his philosophy of the absolute. Although they would eventually part ways with Bergson, some of which was painful, his teaching put them on a path toward a truth both knowable and livable. Raisa, in the passage I mentioned at the outset, draws attention to the worrying trend in modern philosophy of reducing knowledge to a kind of artifice, a construct that risks severing the link between the mind and anything external to it. In the classical pre-modern conception of knowledge, the mind is measured by things and must conform itself to the real in order to achieve truth. Art, by contrast, takes external matter and refashions it according to some ideal in the mind of an artist. We'll see that Maritain has um, is going to qualify that model of artistic creativity, but that's basically right. A certain strain of modern philosophy conflates the two, equating the known with the made or the constructed. Now, in Maritain's account of modern art, and what I want to do here, I'll be laying out some of what Maritain has to say a little bit more about modern civilization, and then I'm going to talk about Maritain's, uh, what Maritain wants to affirm in the experience of modern art and the modern artist and what he is very concerned about. And then I'll end with a reflection that'll pull us back to Flannery O'Connor about um, the limited, well, Flannery calls it the limited revelation of which artists are capable of in the 20th century because the conditions for the work of the artist are so different from what they were in, say, the time of Dante. So Maritain thinks that a certain degree of freedom from fixed external standards is intrinsic to art. Precisely because artific, uh, artistic creativity is never mere passivity in relation to the world, Maritain emphasizes the freedom of the artist. Yet, in its inordinate desire for freedom, modern art can duplicate the idealism of modern philosophy. As Maritain puts it, a certain strain of modern art seeks to free itself completely from nature, language, and intelligibility. Art thus renounces seeing into the inner depths of the world of nature, of visible and corporeal being. It cuts itself off from its connection with sense perception. Notice here that Maritain sees, and I don't think people who study Maritain have reflected on this enough, that Maritain sees a parallel running in modern philosophy to that which is running in modern art. In both mainstream philosophy and contemporary art, Maritain sees the danger of succumbing to a kind of idealism in which thought and art would be, as he puts it, walled in to the internal consciousness of the subject. Thus, art would fail to illuminate the natural world. Severed from nature, our modes of knowing, acting, and making would invite nihilism, meaninglessness. The notion that there are no standards by which to distinguish true from false, good from evil, better from worse, noble from base. Maritain sees the crisis of advanced modernity as a crisis of the human person as maker. But he's careful to distinguish between different types or movements of modern art. And at least in one guise, modern art is wiser than modern philosophy, as uh, Catholic University politics professor David Walsh puts it really good on, 
on lots of things. A certain strain of modern art serves to liberate us from the epistemological straitjacket in which modern idealism would trap the mind. Just for those of you who are not philosophers, um, uh, to modern idealism starts in a way with, with Descartes and Locke and others who want to say that what the mind primarily knows is not stuff out here, but ideas within the intellect. And so, the, but if you say that the mind primarily knows ideas, the, you've got, it really does become impossible to get back out into the world, right? Because if you say, well, uh, what, I'm, what I'm looking at internally is an idea or an image or a concept, and I want to know how I can connect that out with the world, right? Well, what you're going to recur to next is another idea, concept, or image in your head. And so you're going to have this infinite regress where you really can never get back out into the world, right? And much of the uh, really healthy movement in modern continental philosophy is to try to get philosophers' intellects back out into the world, right? Heidegger talked, oops, too early for Heidegger. Be, <laughs> being in the world, right? This, this notion that what we need to do is to think about human beings as already in the world of which they are receptive. Maritain thinks that something similar to that kind of idealism, right, where all I really know are ideas, something similar has happened, can happen in modern art if in its recognition of its freedom from constraints, knowledge should be constrained by all sorts of things, right? But artistic freedom is greater than what we have in knowledge because we're actually making things that are at least not immediately given. The parts may be given, the resources are given from external things, but in art, we're making things that are not immediately given. The danger is that artists can come to want to free themselves from sensation, imagination, intelligence, reason, and even language. And then art gets walled in. As I noted yesterday, Pope Francis discerns in the ecological crisis of our time a sign of a crisis of the human spirit, indeed of all civilization. He not only develops the thought, as I mentioned, of his immediate papal predecessors, but he also echoes the early to mid-20th century Catholic authors like Guardini and Maritain. Guardini is, of course, an obvious influence. Francis's plea for integral ecology calls to mind Maritain's notion of integral humanism. For Maritain, integral humanism is a response to worries about the coming reign of technocratic thinking and its exaltation of means over ends. As was true of many European intellectuals in the first half of the 20th century, Maritain's life, imagination, and thought are informed by a deep sense of loss and of the tenuous status of all civilized society. World wars fought in the heart of Europe shattered what seemed after the fact to have been deeply naive assumptions about the validity of progressive enlightened modernity. The First World War was a traumatic shock to the system of modern Western civilization, casting deep doubts on modernity whose promises of progress seemed empty in the face of the rise of a barbaric war unknown in previous epochs. The issue of progress in the Second Great War was somewhat different. Maritain's reflection can be found in a text with an unlikely topic and title, 
for such ruminations. In 1943, he was provoked by war to compose Education at the Crossroads, a book that scatters references to the Nazis and the Second World War throughout. Writing at a time when the West was calling upon its technological power and a cohort of technocratic experts to defeat Nazism, Maritain worried, as did C.S. Lewis, Hannah Arendt, and a number of others that the West might lose by winning. That is to say, the means of victory, namely superior technology and technological expertise, might undermine the very things for which the West was fighting. If the danger in Germany is fanatical group identity, the threat for the West is technocratic pragmatics. The menace of the former is obvious, while the peril of the latter is more subtle. As many intimated at the time, however, subjection to technocratic fideism, particularly if that paradigm were to dominate culture and state, could itself lead to a form of totalitarianism. Technocracy leaves in human life nothing but relationships of force, maritime rights, or at best those of pleasure. It ignores or repudiates the spiritual dignity of man and rests on the assumption that merely material or biological standards rule human life and morality. It is striking how much of the argument of Laudato Si recapitulates these mid-20th century themes from Maritain. Recall Francis writing, the idea of promoting a different cultural paradigm and employing technology as a mere instrument is nowadays inconceivable. We lack a sound ethics, a culture, and spirituality genuinely capable of setting limits and teaching clear-minded restraint. Thus, we stand naked and exposed in the face of our ever-increasing power, lacking the wherewithal to control it. Nihilism, or the loss of any sense of order, purpose, or meaning, haunts the modern technocratic project. Beyond the devastation of the planet, another result is the vanishing uh, of any sense of belonging for human persons who are now bereft in the cosmos. As a corrective to this dilemma, or at least part of the corrective, Maritain and Francis, Maritain at much greater length, both make a case for a deepening of cultural roots. This is one of the elements uh, that's implicit in Francis referring to the throwaway culture. We need to have a culture that is not easily disposable and a recovery of elements of pre-modern traditions whose neglect has hastened our cosmic dislocation. Now I want to talk just briefly about the three operations of the mind. This comes out of book six of Aristotle's Ethics, right? Contemplation, prudence, and art. Uh, and uh, techne, as it is in Greek, is the human capacity for making. And this covers everything from making desks and shoes to making cathedrals and beautiful works of art. Phronesis or prudence is the capacity for practical wisdom. Right? The, the discernment of the appropriate means to appropriate ends and the securing of the good life for individuals and for communities. There's both individual prudence and communal or political prudence. Philosophia, the contemplative and receptive encounter with natural things, with being, and ultimately with God as cause, that's rooted in and culminates for us in this life at least in a kind of wonder. These are three different operations of the human mind. 
right? Two are practical. One is theoretical or contemplative. The two practical ones are art and prudence. One concerned with making, one concerned with doing. Contemplation is concerned with knowing. One way to articulate the concern that Maritain and others have, and I think it's implicit in Francis as well, is to say that the first capacity of techne has come to overshadow the other two. Thus, one of the sources of our crisis is the abusive practice and the misunderstanding of the human person as maker. Without contemplation, which is rooted in a disposition of receptive wonder, and without practical wisdom, which orders means to the ends of human flourishing, the human intellect can easily be reduced to its calculating and constructing capacities. Right? So as Pieper and others have pointed out, is it is one of the problems we have with virtue words, right, is that we have debased substitutes, what, uh, what McEmpire calls at one point simulacra of the virtues, things that look like virtue. So we tend to think of prudence very often as a capacity to calculate. Science and modernity can be seen to edge out contemplation. In fact, knowledge can become a kind of techne, mapping and mastering the material world. Once this productive paradigm of knowledge is in place, prudence loses its role as the architectonic virtue of the practical order. It becomes a technique of manipulating means to whatever temporary goals happen to be desired. Great way of putting this in Hobbes. Knowledge comes into our power and enables us to seek how to make something. Right? So this is, this is true in Bacon and in Hobbes, and even to some extent in parts of Descartes, right? that knowledge is about that you, you know that you know something when you can reproduce it. Right? So Bacon has this really nifty, short refutation of the entirety of ancient philosophy. Ancient philosophy is about knowing causes. Well, Bacon wants to say, if the ancients really knew the causes, they could produce the effects. But look around. We haven't produced anything. But notice that underlying Bacon's critique is an assumption that knowledge is about production. Right? It's not simply about contemplation. But this, this critique of ancient philosophy runs through the 16th and 17th century. Not everybody, but it runs through Hobbes uh, and, and Locke to some extent and, uh, and certainly Bacon. Thoughts for Hobbes become the scouts and spies of the passions, finding the most efficient means for the realization of desire. And, and once we focus upon knowledge as productive, techne expands its scope, right? It's not merely one among three operations that has this, I mean, it's, it's the least talked about, right, in Aristotle's ethics of the operations of the mind. It expands its scope, invades the other two, and then creates its own orders. And, and part of what's going on in the modern revolution in the artistic world is this expansion of the role of art. Right, David Walsh, again. We no longer instruct artists what to create. We simply await their instruction of us through art. Such is the extraordinary stature acquired by art in the modern period 
that we might well regard it as a parallel to the astonishing independence gained by science. In its dominance of culture high and low, and in its remarkable impact on our politics, art takes on increasing authority. Walsh says this, modern society is the first thoroughly artistic civilization. One thing he doesn't notice that I think is important is that there's a parallel between the authoritative independence of technological science and art. Both are rooted in a kind of awe in the face of human making. The connection between the products of human artifice and philosophical disposition of wonder goes back to Plato and Aristotle, certainly, the latter of whom notes in the opening of the metaphysics that the philosopher and the poet are both concerned with wonder. This connection, I think, is important. It helps to account for the willingness of both expert, elite culture and ordinary citizens to remain silent in the face of technologies advances. We hesitate to raise ethical questions, not just because technology promises to alleviate evil, but also because we are stupefied by its continuously astonishing products. I think there is something that we need to reckon with here that we don't usually in the thought about technology here, here, everywhere. That there's something um, not purely rational about our attachment to technology. It, it, it's presented in a way that feeds our reason, right? And that we can calculate, well, this is, this is faster, it's got more memory, it's got the pictures are better, whatever it might be. This is all very rational, right? But why we should be so addicted, and I think addicted is often the right word, to the novelties of technology is something deeper than reason. There's something subterranean that we're pulled into with technology. And I think these early modern thinkers saw this, right? That there was something really powerful that wasn't fully rational and that hooks us in ways that we're not quite aware of while we think we're fully aware, right? So we think we're fully in control of technology, right? There's this great book called The Ethics of Geometry by David Lochterman who talks about the difference between, do we have any Thomas Aquinas? or St. John's, we have some St. John's people who read, studied Euclid. Um, but there's a difference between Euclidean and Cartesian um, geometry, which is, which is important because ancient geometry was about demonstrating truths, right? And Q, the QED at the end of demonstrations has this really odd kind of Latin, that which was to be demonstrated, right? A sense that what you're doing is you are recovering in a geometrical demonstration truth that's already out there, right? So there's weird tenses there, that which was to have been demonstrated, right? Um, in, in modern geometry, the focus is not on demonstrations but on constructions. So the Descartes geometry is an endless series of constructions. Lochterman concludes the topos of wonder now has a new home, the artistry of the technician. This is what we're fascinated with, is the artistry of the technician. The question for human making is whether it can enhance rather than foreclose the discovery of the natural in the human. That is whether in addition to inspiring awe at technical artistry, it can return us to the natural world as a source of wonder and gratitude. I want to say a little bit about Maritain's view of this um, and the, the good and evil that he sees in modern art. Now, Maritain notes, and this is what you have in Responsibility of the Artist, 
right? There's the world of prudence and there's the world of art. They are, in a sense, autonomous. Making stands outside the human sphere. It as an end rules values which are not those of the human, but those of the work to be produced. The work is everything for art and the artist. There is but one law, the exigencies and the good of the work. Hence, he says, and this is where he sounds like David Walsh, the tyrannical and absorbing power of art, and also its astonishing power of soothing. And then he goes on to say, although these are two autonomous worlds, each sovereign, they cannot ignore or disregard one another. For man belongs in these two worlds, both of them, both as a maker and as a moral agent. And because an artist is a man before, before being an artist, the autonomous world of morality is simply superior to the autonomous world of art. Art is indirectly and extrinsically subordinate to morality. And we can talk more about this. And the lecture yesterday and today uh, by Father Reginald are directly on some of these matters. Maritain says, the prudent man and the artist have difficulty understanding one another. Now, here's, here's where Maritain breaks with, decisively, with this modern conception of techne as, as ruling. In Aristotle, techne and uh, phronesis, art and prudence, are, are look closer to one another than contemplation because they're both about acting or doing, right? Contemplation is simply about knowing. Maritain wants to say art, we're talking about sort of high art here, right? Art is actually closer to contemplation than it is to prudence. And this is where he departs from the modern celebration of techne. The contemplative and the artist, the one bound to wisdom, the other to beauty, are naturally close. The contemplative knows the place and the value of art and understands the artist. The artist in his turn divines the grandeur of the contemplative and feels congenial with him. He's fond of quoting the connection that Aquinas draws between contemplation and play and the way in which art allows us to rest and play. So on the one hand in Maritain, he has a negative appraisal, which I've already mentioned, of certain tendencies of modern art. As artists become increasingly aware of their creative freedom, they're tempted to focus on recasting the visible, even to the point of denying the sources of, of creativity in sense experience. In this way, art becomes, as I already put it, walled in, like idealism. And again, we have a kind of what Percy calls angelism, right? A denial of the sensible world and the body. On the other hand, Maritain, like David Walsh, sees in modern art a response to some of the dilemmas of modernity. This modern discovery of the freedom of the artist is a discovery of interior depths. You find this in Augustine for the discussion of the memory, and Charles Taylor's written a lot about this in, in this great book, Sources of the Self. But for Maritain, this discovery of inner depths is a discovery in the artist's creative roots of the artist of the mutual entanglement of nature and man or of the world and the self. So the interior depths are also mirrored for Maritain by external depths. Right? What I'm discovering as an artist is this interior capacity that I have to see and put together things that are received from 
the external world. So Maritain never thinks that good artists are just about subjectivism. Right? They're not merely about self-expression. In fact, the artist that he quotes on Haney is really clear about this, right? He says, well, you, I stay with these lines of poetry for a few days and let them tell me what the next move is, right? And you go back to memories and experiences and you let them tell you as an artist. So there's a deep obedience that an artist has. Poetic knowledge, Maritain says, is, is knowledge by connaturality. It's a kind of pre-conscious knowledge. This reaches both the artist and the experience of art more profoundly than any rational proposition. For it strikes with two terrible weapons, intuition and beauty, at the single root in the artist of all his energies, intellect and will, imagination, emotion, passions, instincts, and even obscure tendencies. Poetic activity is, for Maritain says, nonetheless, despite having this connection to emotion, it's disinterested. It engages the human self in its deepest recesses, but not for the sake of the human ego. Right? It's for the sake of the art, the exigencies and demand of the art. The very engagement of the artist's self in poetic activity, the very revelation of the artist's self in his work, together with the particular secret he has obscurely grasped in things, are for the sake of the world. The self is both revealing and sacrificing itself. It is drawn out of itself in a kind of ecstasy which is creation. And Maritain says that in our experience of the beautiful, we delight, there is delight of the intellect through the senses, such as the beautiful that is proper to our art, which is not merely an intelligible art. It's a, the, the ordering of sensible matter in order to delight the spirit. It has at one point, he says, the savor of the terrestrial paradise because it restores for a moment the peace and the simultaneous delight of the intellect and the senses. Notice there that our experience of art is more like contemplation than it is like prudence. Right? We rest in art the way we rest in metaphysical or mathematical truth. Although we don't, although there is abstraction in the way you were talking about yesterday, are the, the wonderful thing, the great thing about art, right, is that we don't have to do the work. There's the natural abstraction that the intellect is always doing in these cases. But we're not doing the work of abstraction, right, in the way we were if we were really trying to understand um, a species, a natural species, or mathematics, right, or physics, where we really have to work. When we confront a work of art, it ought to speak to us directly. One of the problems with certain strains of modern art is it doesn't do that, right? The famous uh, Tom Wolfe book, The Painted Word, right, where he went to an exhibit at the Met and he realized he had to read the theory in this long plate on the side before he could understand the art, right? The Painted Word. No, it ought to just be painted images that speak to us. Last, last comment here, and then I'm happy to take some questions. Well, two comments. One is just to conclude that part and to cut out some things here. So this, I mentioned that Maritain sees dangers in modern art that are akin to those of idealism 
right? Where in its pursuit of freedom, modern art can try to liberate itself from everything, and then it becomes walled in. That's a great phrase. On the other hand, authentic creative intuition is the expression of the artist and the expression of the secret that the artist has detected in his or her experience. Right? This is presented to us as a kind of beauty that allows us to rest in contemplative joy and delight. It's also pulling us, Maritan thinks, into the riches of being. So Maritan insists that because the artist can't break this mutual entanglement of the artist or the person with nature, or should not break it, that all great art is pulling us into a surplus that, right, I mean, think about trying to describe a great work of art. You can talk forever, and you're not going to fully capture it. There's always something in your experience of it, tacit knowledge is what this is called at certain points, Polanyi and others, right? There's always some surplus in the experience that can't be fully articulated. And what art does is to remind us of that, pull us into an experience of richness, what David Walsh calls the luminosity of being. That's how art can correct the idealism and anthropocentrism of modern philosophy because it pulls us out of that anthropocentric standard into a richer world. Last point. And I'll say a little bit more about this tomorrow. Say more about this tomorrow if Rowe had a really complicated uh, relationship to traditional art. Um, the, the best book that Nietzsche wrote is his first book called The Advantage and Disadvantage of History for Life, where he goes back to the Greeks. But he and I'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow. He talks about different types of history. And he talks about the way in which our relation to the past is that monumental, um, uh, antiquarian, and critical. Right? And each of these have a role, and each of these have defects. And when we, we talk a lot, people like us talk a lot about tradition. Um, Nietzsche's helpful because Nietzsche's getting us to think about how we gain access to tradition. One of the, one of the things about modernity is that the connections to tradition have been broken to a certain extent, right? In some cases, really broken. And so when we recover tradition, that's a weird thing to think of, right? You're sort of some, tradition is something that's handed, handed down, right? When you're recovering tradition, it's important to do that, but there are lots of ways in which that can go wrong, right? And so we'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. One of the ways it can go wrong in art is that we demand that contemporary art be like Michelangelo or Raphael or Caravaggio or something like that, right? And, um, and Maritain thinks that no one can really duplicate the experience and art, artistic achievement of Dante. Because Dante was living in cultural conditions that made possible something that's really not possible for us. And Flannery O'Connor has this to say. Unless we are willing to accept our artists as they are, the answer to the question, who speaks for America today, will have to be the advertising agencies. Where the artist is still trusted, he will not be looked to for assurance. There's a question about that which we'll confront with Rouault, who certainly was not 
and artists that gave us assurance, right? Because I've just said art helps restore us, we rest in things. So what do we do with the ugly in art, right? The artist will not be looked to for assurance. We will need to take, Flannery says, what the artist offers as a revelation. Now, I don't think she's quite right about this, about all art. I would be, I'm a little more optimistic than Flannery here. It's a revelation not of what we ought to be, but of what we are at a given time and under certain circumstances. That is as a limited revelation, but a revelation nevertheless. Thanks.